Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all uh, this morning to worship God with you. If you would now, please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This morning, we will consider Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8. I've been looking forward to these next two sermons. This is the Christ hymn of Philippians. It is so wonderful to look at. So this morning we'll look at the first half by looking at verses... Uh, 5 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Before we hear God's word, if you would join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, your commandments are exceedingly broad, the depths of which we will never plumb in this life. We thank you for your, the richness of your word and for its benefit to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would give us a heart to delight in your word, to feed upon Christ and the gospel, that we might be changed by it. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your word would have an effect upon your people, that you would subdue our pride and increase our love for you and for one another. We ask that you would do this good work to the praise of your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Beloved, this is the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll finish this out. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Verses 6 through 11 make up a concise and beautiful expression of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. This section here, verses 6 through 11, it sits right in the middle of Philippians, like a stack of shining gold in the middle of this letter. And so if we looked at it in this way, the light that is reflected off this section bounces all across the rest of the letter. It shines across the rest of what Paul says in Philippians. I don't think it would be entirely, uh, in thinking of this, I don't think it would be entirely inappropriate to make reference to this section in every sermon from every section in Philippians. I don't think that would be altogether inappropriate. In fact, I have referenced this section in other sermons already. And so we could illustrate this section like this. Imagine someone having friends over for a conversation in the living room of their house. Before the friends arrive, the host places a beautiful vase filled with a dozen red roses in full bloom right in the middle of the coffee table in the living room. The room and the occasion 
were not meant to show off the flowers and the verse per se, but their beauty and the aroma touches upon every part of that experience. It makes that whole experience most pleasant. Paul, in other words, it seems, did not set out to write this letter in order to highlight verses 6 through 11. If we look at the rest of the letter, letter, that's not why he wrote this letter, so he could insert this here, as beautiful as these verses are. But he did decide to use these verses about Christ's humiliation and his exaltation to give further power to what he says in the rest of the letter and to reinforce what he says in the rest of the letter. And mostly, in this context, what he says about unity. And perhaps also, he wanted to give the Philippians a very clear and concise Christological foundation for everything he says. Everything he says in the letter is grounded upon all the truth that is found here in these several verses. And we don't know for sure all of Paul's intentions when he decided to include this part, uh, this hymn in in his letter. But we do know for sure that based on what he wrote here, that this section was at least meant to give a clear grounding to his hearers for his call upon everyone in the church to be unified. That is at least his intention here for including this hymn. That's where it's found. It's found right after the call upon the church to be unified. But I think also more than this, these words about Christ, they reveal the the source of the church's power to be unified. If we are to be unified, if we are going to be unified, this is where it comes from, from this, the gospel, which is so neatly revealed here and so beautifully revealed in these six poetic verses. What does Paul say right after this, after this Christ hymn? He says, therefore, work out your salvation. These verses then have been inserted here to give us, I think, a ground for these calls, these commands upon the church to be unified, to work out our salvation. And so many that have read this hymn, that have studied these verses, have regarded this, this section as some type of Christ hymn. That's why I called it a Christ hymn in the beginning, the Christ hymn of Philippians. Many of us, some of us are familiar with that. Well, this is what this is. Maybe Paul wrote this hymn himself, or maybe he borrowed it and inserted it in his letter. We don't know for sure. In fact, that some might argue that calling these verses a hymn might be going too far, but for the most part, theologians and scholars who have studied this section regard this section as a hymn. Whether or not this section is or was an actual Christian hymn, it is clear that these verses do have a poetic pattern. There's a very clear poetic pattern and a rhythm to them. In most Greek Bibles, these verses are set apart in in the form of like a psalm. Like if you read the Psalms in your English Bibles, they're structured differently than uh, a letter, structured differently than, uh, than prose in the rest of the Bible. That's how these words are structured in Greek Bibles. They are structured like a poem or a hymn. There is a balance and a symmetry and a flow, a melody to these verses that is not found in the rest of the letter. 
and really anything close to what we see here in this section. And so with this in mind, we could divide these verses into different stanzas, just like we divide a hymn into different stanzas. We just sing a hymn, we sang all of the stanzas. And so we could divide this hymn similarly. Uh, and as we do this, as I explain this, I just want to reveal that I'm following my favorite commentator on this book. His name is Moises Silva, and this is how he divides it, and he's not alone in this. But we could divide it into six stanzas, and this, of course, isn't definitive. The first three refer to Christ's humiliation, which we'll look at today. And these stanzas correspond, for the most part, to the way your verses are versed in your English Bibles. Verse 1 is, stanza 1 would be verse 6, stanza 2, verse 7, and so on. But the first three stanzas deal with Christ's humiliation. The second three stanzas refer to his exaltation. In verse 5, though, before we get into the hymn, in verse 5, Paul sets the stage. Now remember, he wants the Philippians to be unified, to have one mind. And to do this, they must do nothing from selfish ambition. We cannot be unified if some of us are pursuing selfish ambition, selfish goals, our own prerogatives. And so we are called not to be selfish. In order to do that... We have to consider other people's needs, to consider other people's needs in addition to our own and to consider others as more significant than ourselves. And so it's a collective mindset that we are all individually to have among the members of the church. This is the way that we are to think. This is how we are to think in all of our dealings with one another is not just think about ourselves, but to think about your neighbor's needs. Others are more significant than us. Do not be selfish. Well, what better way to stress this point than to have the members of the church think about Christ? If we're to think this way, how can we get our minds oriented around thinking that way? We think about Christ and what he has done, what he has done for us. And so he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says here, at least, think like Christ. Think like Christ did. This is what he did. Think like him. That is how you are to think. And so that's what this this Christ hymn gives us. But he says more, too, I think. He says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says a similar thing in chapter 4 when he's speaking to two women, Udia, or about two women, Udia and Syntyche. He says, I entreat Udia and I entreat Syntyche to agree, have the same mind, think in the same manner, in the Lord. So then verse 5, back to verse 5 of our passage, could be considered as a reference to our union with Christ. Have this mind which is yours in Christ. You have been united to Christ by faith. You have his thinking. You have his mind. Therefore, think like that. And in fact, that is true based on the rest of the teaching of Scripture. Because we've been united to Jesus as our head, we do think like him. He's, we are part of him. And so we have the mind of Christ. And so in the power of the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ and we are to think like Christ. How did he think? And that is what we're going to look at. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this verse, or this stanza, this Christ hymn, it references 
Christ's pre-existence in eternity as the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he was in the form of God. Now, Paul very clearly defines what form of God means. What does that mean in this hymn? The form of God. He defines it for us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so form of God means equality with God. It's defined for us in this hymn. The Son, Jesus, the Son is distinct from the Father, but he is equal to the Father in terms of divinity. Form of God, then, means the Son is equal to the Father in power and glory. That's what form of God means, equal to God. Jesus was God. He is God. He will always be God. That will never change. Change. In the context, the emphasis, I think, here is on Christ's pre-existence. That is, before the world began, before we were created, before the universe was created, and certainly before Christ took on human flesh in Mary's womb, before any of this, this is who the Son was, and this is who He is. He was in the form of God, and therefore equal with God. And so in terms of dignity and glory... There is no higher place in all of reality. Equal with God is the highest place that we can possibly think of in terms of dignity, honor, power, glory. There is no place higher. To be God, that is the highest place. Now we, because of our sin and our pride, we want to become like God's. And so we're always thinking how we might rise higher and higher and higher in dignity and the praise of men. We will never reach this status, though, to be God. That is Jesus. He is God. There is no higher place than this. He was equal to God. Jesus, though out of his self-awareness as God, what did he think about this divinity? It was not something to be grasped. Verse 6. And so we could... We could say it this way. Jesus did not consider, he did not think, his mind was not operating in this way. Verse 5. He did not think equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. That is how Jesus regarded equality with God. To put it in Paul's words, Jesus, though he was equal with God, did nothing from selfish ambition. That is what that means. How did Christ himself think about his divinity? He thought of it as something that would not be used for his own advantage. He did nothing from selfish ambition. Instead, what did he do? In thinking of our need for a divine Savior, verse 7, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of men. Now, once again here, what do these words mean? Well, Paul defines his phrases for us, or the hymn, I guess. The hymn, the hymn writer, whether or not it was Paul, defines the phrases for us. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? He became man. He took to himself a human nature. He was born in the likeness of men. He was born 
to marry. Like other men are born to a woman, Jesus was born to a woman. He was born to Mary and therefore of her substance, truly. He was truly human, just like us, except without sin. That is what it means for Jesus to empty himself. He became man. Paul calls Christ also a servant here. And so as man, he did not change his thinking. It's not as though, it's not as though Jesus, once he became man, decided to use his divinity at that point for his own advantage, to use his power. He continued that very same thinking. As man, he continued to consider our needs as man. And so he came to be served. Or he came not to be served, but to serve. He was a servant. I came not to be served, but to serve. That's why he's referenced as a servant here in this hymn. Being born taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he came, again, to serve, not to be served. He is the promised suffering servant of Isaiah. And as a servant, he carried our griefs and our sorrows. That is what he did with his newfound humanity. He carried our griefs and our sorrows. He served us. Now, this is, there's something important we need to understand here as we consider these words. By saying that Christ emptied himself, Paul does not mean that Christ in becoming man ceased being God. That is not what that means, though some false teachers do present it as such. To be God means you can't stop being God. That's the very definition of God. God is and he always will be. And so to say that Jesus emptied himself does not mean that he stopped being God. He did not empty himself of divinity when he was born to Mary. Being equal to God means that the Son does not change. He is immutable. Being in the form of God means that the Son will always be God. He therefore does not change. And so, no, in the incarnation, Jesus took to himself a human nature, but the Son did not change. He incurred no change in that. Now, that's a mystery for sure, but that is the nature of the case. But he did take to himself a human nature so that the divine nature, equality with God, and the human nature, likeness of men, were joined together in one person forever. He's 100% God, equal with God, and 100% man, likeness of man. Who is this person? It's your Redeemer. The Redeemer of God's elect, Jesus Christ. That is what this hymn is about. It's the Christ hymn. And yet still, as a man, not thinking equality with God is something to be used for his own advantage. That is the way he thought. Christ, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Christ was born in the likeness of men, but he grew up into a man. He matured, and he was revealed to the world in his ministry on earth as truly human. He was found in the likeness of man, found in human form. And as God and man, did Jesus use his power for selfish gain as man in his ministry? No, he was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death. In humility, Christ fully submitted to his Father's will. That is how he thought. He did not consider equality with God 
as something to be used for his own advantage. He remained obedient to his father's will to the point of death. Now, what was the purpose of this obedience? Well, in a word, our redemption. That was why he obeyed. And therefore, Christ's perfect obedience, his every thought, his every desire, every action, every word spoken as man was done in perfect conformity to his Father's will. And why was this requirement of obedience placed on Christ? He was perfectly obedient to his Father's will. Never wavered in desire, in thought, in deed, in word, never wavered. Why was that requirement placed upon him to do that? Because this is what we needed. We needed him to obey in our place. We were disobedient. We did see our power as being in the image of God, as something to be grasped, to be used for our own advantage, to to perhaps make us more like God. We want to be like God. That's what Adam and Eve did. And because of that, we needed a savior. We needed someone to be obedient in our place because we are disobedient. We were disobedient. We need another to obey in our place to be accepted by God. And so Christ was obedient because he considered our needs. We looked at this last week already. He regarded us as more significant than to use his own glory and power as God for his own advantage. That's what he did. He had our needs in mind. And this is why it makes sense that Christ was obedient to the point of death. His death was the culmination of his perfect obedience. His death was the the climax of his perfect obedience on earth. It was the logical endpoint of being perfectly obedient to his father. His death brings into view again here in this hymn, as he mentions his death, to the point of death, it brings into, again, brings into view for us again the mind of Christ. Adam broke God's law. He disobeyed. And so does every man since then, of course, except for Christ. We disobeyed, and therefore, what results from our disobedience? Death. We deserve death. Adam deserved death because he was disobedient. He brought death into the world because not of his obedience, because of his disobedience. This is our need. We owe God death, eternal death, because we were disobedient. Because we didn't think like this. We thought, I'm going to use what I have for my own advantage. If we are to be saved from death, another would have to pay the penalty in our place. We could not give God eternal death. It is impossible for man, a created being, to pay back God eternal cursedness, a cursedness, eternal death. We could not give him that, but Christ can because of what we see here. He's God. He can pay that debt. He's equal with God. He was in the form of God. And so he can pay what we owed to God. In this context, then, Jesus is, in considering our need for this type of sacrifice, what did he do? 
Did he count his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage? No. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. And what was Paul looking for in the church in this letter? That they would humble themselves before Paul's commands and be obedient to the call to be unified. Lower yourself. Humble yourself before the word of God, before these calls upon you to be unified. That is exactly what Jesus did. Do nothing from selfish gain. Think of others' needs in addition to your own. Become servants to one another. Not masters over each other, but servants to one another. That is what Jesus did. Now, in order to emphasize, and so this is what we have here in this Christ hymn. Now, in order to emphasize the horrendous depths of Christ's humbling, his lowering of himself, this last little phrase is added into this first part of the hymn. And within the rhythm of this hymn, it seems, as you read these words, it seems to almost not fit in the song. It's almost an afterthought. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not die peacefully in his bed, surrounded by friends and family. He wasn't killed in a great military battle and then afterwards honored as a great hero. He was executed. He was murdered by the Jewish authorities working together with the Roman authorities. In the most degrading and humiliating way possible, this was done. Crucifixion. Death on a cross. Now, the Jews had already considered being hung on a tree to die as a form of being cursed by God. That that thought was already there among the Jews. It's in Deuteronomy to be hung on a tree to die is to be cursed by God. So they already had a very, very low view of being hung on a tree. And the Romans come along and they borrow that and they use that to humiliate their opponents in the worst way possible. The Philippians would have understood this. The Philippians, they were part of a Roman colony. They understood that death by crucifixion in the Roman Empire was an utterly humiliating way to die. They knew that. Being fastened naked to a cross to die, to be crucified, that kind of death was reserved for the most vile offenders because they deserved it. They deserved to be humiliated in that way. But Jesus was obedient, and that is where he ended up. He was obedient to the point of death, and he ended up on a cross for his obedience. This is where he ended up. Again, friends, this happened because this is the the place in which we were as disobedient sons. This was our place. Cursed by God, we were humiliated before God, we did not love God, cursed by Him, deserving of His wrath, deserving of a punishment like that. And yet Jesus is undeserving, perfectly obedient, and He ends up there where we should have been. Naked, humiliated humiliated before God because of our sin. This place, death, humiliation, accursedness, This is where Christ had to go in order to meet our needs. Do you see that? He had to go here. In thinking of our needs, he had to go 
to this low place, the cross, crucifixion, to save us, death on a cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in this hymn, so far, we're not done with it. We'll look at it next week, Lord willing. In this hymn, so far, we have traveled from the highest possible place in terms of dignity, glory, honor, power. What is that place? To be God, equal with God. That is Christ. He's the Son of God. We've gone from there to the absolute lowest possible place that we can ever think of. Death on a cross. Crucifixion. Forsaken by God as a man. There's no lower place. Now, friends, as we think about this, where where we've gone, where we began and now where we are in this hymn, if we want to be obedient to verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Among yourselves. If we want to be obedient to verse 5 and become servants to one another, not be selfish, think about the needs of others, we will have to humble ourselves. We will have to empty ourselves, lower ourselves for the sake of others to meet their needs. And so whatever rights or whatever privileges you think you have or you thought you have in your relationships with your neighbor, you must empty yourselves of those to serve your neighbor's needs. You see what Paul does here with this hymn then? That's what Christ did. Think this way. You have to do that. You can't avoid that. If you truly want to heed this call to have the mind of Christ. And so if we do this, if we empty ourselves of what we think we deserve from others and start thinking about how we can serve others and their needs, we will suffer for one another. You can't avoid that either. You will suffer for your neighbor if you choose and decide and to to think and act like this, to empty yourselves for them. But whatever type of suffering, friends, and this is what I want you to hear, whatever type of lowering of yourself that God calls you to, to meet the needs of others, you will never, ever lower yourself as far as Christ lowered himself in saving us. Do you see that? You will never reach the extent of the depths that Christ had to enter into in order to save you. And so that's where we get our mind. That is where we get our thinking from. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together, friends.